0: Hey, how's it going? This is Craig Cannon and you're listening to Y Combinators Podcast. Today's episode is with Dan Hockenmeyer and Gustav Alstromer. Dan is the founder of the growth strategy firm Basis One. Prior to Basis One, he was the director of growth marketing at ThumbTack. You can learn more about Dan at BasisOne.com. Gustav is a partner at YC. Prior to YC, he was the product lead for growth at Airbnb. You can find Dan on Twitter at Dan Hockenmeyer, and Gustav is at Gustav. Alright, here we go. Today we have Dan Hockenmeyer and Gustav Alstromer. So Dan is the founder, uh, investor, and advisor at Basis One, which is growth strategy consulting. And previous to that, you were director of growth marketing at Thumbtack. And Gustav's a partner at YC
1: and also was a product lead for growth at Airbnb. So Gustav, why don't you start it off? Sure. Um, So I was thinking about getting right into it. So uh, Dan, you advise a lot of startup on growth, and you kind of get into their their, their teams and work directly with them on growth. Um, what is the most unpopular advice that you give the founders of the companies that you work with? So I say nine times out of 10, we are talking
2: them out of doing things that they want to do. Um, I think, you know, as you know, there's this huge power law to growth. I think most of the gains come from, you know, one channel, a, a handful of tactics, and most early teams are really good at coming up with good ideas that they want to try, and uh, and often that has diminishing returns, and so we're often talking them out of things. Uh, I think the, like, second class of things would be actually that the company may not be ready for a traditional growth effort, and so I think it's really important to think about where they are in, in terms of product market fit, and when the kind of the right types of tactics should be, should be used
0: yeah in, in terms of being specific around that like what are the most common things that people are trying to jump on too soon So I think, um, really heavyweight acquisition,
2: particularly if it's unsustainable prior to having the right kind of retention. And so like, you know, you don't have to have best in class retention numbers, but you need to be seeing some cohorts of people for which retention truly levels out and they use the product very long term. And if you don't see that, uh, you're, you're not ready. Um, and particularly if you're doing things like paid marketing or others, um, which can have big burn
1: implications, uh, you can get to that too, too fast and that can be really problematic. So let's say I run a Series B company. Um, It's a consumer company, and I just hired you to help me figure things out. What are the questions you're going to ask me, and what are the data you want from me?
2: So I think it's a really healthy exercise to actually start with a pretty traditional spreadsheet model, you know? Like, (laughs) uh, what are the uh, kind of channels uh, of acquisition? How does does traffic uh, convert, activate, retain? What are your different cohorts of retention look like? And how does all this link up? Now, how do like your existing users then start referring other users? Uh, How does monetization fuel your paid growth strategy? And when you build something like this, you can like play around and say, what happens if our activation rate goes up by 5%? Usually that's really powerful, much more powerful than a 20% increase in acquisition. and so I think about, think about like the kind of
1: full stack of things um, and how it all links together. And it's a really good starting point for where there's leverage. So if I am that founder and I, I couldn't hire you, I couldn't afford you, like who is the person in my team that should kind of make that spreadsheet? Like and yeah. who, who, like where, where, do, where do I start if I don't hire you?
2: So uh, I'm a big fan of, smart analytical generalist, actually. Okay. Um, and it depends a little bit on, on, you know, whether you need more of a marketing business type person or more of a technical person, but somebody who, uh, one, uh, has kind of low pride of ownership and just wants to move fast and test things mm-hmm. and, and figure out what works, um, and is deeply analytical can often get a lot of that, a uh, lot of that work done. I mean, I think, w- you know, we can talk about the composition of a like large scale growth team. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a luxury that many don't have. And so finding somebody who can do lots of those things before, you know, what's really going to Work is really valuable. And so, what signals during an interview would you look for? Uh, so, I think the big thing is is can they hold the equation of your bi- your business in their head? So, like, do they know how a change is going to impact? the overall output of what, what uh, your business is optimizing for, whether that's weekly active users or transactions in a marketplace, um, and do they have an intuitive sense for where the kind of important things to work on are? Um, and then the other type of stuff, like learning channels, um, you know, most people can get up to the speed on that pretty quickly. It's much harder to teach the kind of like strategic kind of understanding of where to focus.
1: Mm.
0: Did you find that true at Airbnb as well?
1: Uh. Yeah, I would say so. That's probably true. Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'd be curious if you have any kind of counterpoints or areas where you needed more specialty earlier on.
1: Um, so I, I would say that the story of Airbnb was basically um, we had uh, probably one of the best market fits that I've seen, uh, but not necessarily thanks to like an amazing user flow an amazing onboarding or even amazing acquisition channel. It's just like a really good experience. So if you think about the early days of Airbnb, um, half the price... Uh, the most unique experiences that you can imagine um, was actually very compelling. Uh, and you can like think about the neighborhoods. Like if you want to live in New York, um, your options were to live in a hotel in Midtown versus living somewhere in a real neighborhood <clears throat> where there's, there are real people and you can go down <clears throat> to the corner and, and grab a coffee just like normal citizens. Yeah. That is a great kind of like product experience. And it sort of sells itself. And I'll give you an early example. Like before we had what we call instant book, the way that you would um, book an Airbnb is that you would send a request to someone and that person have to then uh, request a book and that person had to then confirm that booking before you actually got the booking. Uh, In many cases, actually the majority of cases in the early days, uh, the request was not confirmed. (laughs) So you wanted to book something and sorry, it didn't work out. And that was sort of like, if you think of the idea of Airbnb, which is book any house or room in the world as easy as a booking hotel wasn't really true. So if you think of that kind of product experience, um there's a lot of friction in the early days um that sort of um sort of didn't it mattered, but it didn't also didn't really matter for the success of the company. When I joined Airbnb, we were like, whoa, this is really working, but mm-hmm. what are all the things that we can optimize? So we optimize sort of like the onboarding flow, we optimize all the different acquisition channels, SEO, paid marketing, referrals, um we've tried looking at retention all of those different things but fundamentally what it worked for me was this great product experience and we just want to make it more available to the world
0: right so this is a key question and, and perhaps a dichotomy between growth and product right like mm-hmm. the classic yc advice is build something people want mm-hmm. so like, where do you guys fall in this debate like how much of it is just building a great product and how much of it is like being great at growth
2: So, so I think like that. Maybe the better way to frame this is not like which is more important because we can debate that. But like I think, rather obviously, both play play a role long term. It's more how the two are tied to one another. And so I think like if you think in particular on the consumer side, but it's true for B two B as well. To get to 100 million in revenue, typically. 70, 80% of all new customer acquisition is coming from one channel. And so like the, the best products are the ones that are built to optimize for that channel. So if it's paid marketing, you need to monetize quickly and deeply. If it's SEO, you have to have a really good way to generate and curate content or else you just can't compete because the other products are doing that. And so if, you know, I get a lot of questions around like, how do we kind of like add some SEO on top of this product or add (laughs) virality? And it's just, that's just never the answer because you need to be asking that question two years ago, you know, a year ago. And so you can build for it. And so I think that piece is really important. Um, I do think there are examples where a product is so unique that it allows them to compete on kind of like a different vector, you know? And so like, um, like zooms S1 that everybody's looking at, I mean, like the metrics are Incredible. And one of the reasons is they like came in the back door. Basically, they have like a product that people love and it becomes viral and they're already pre-qualified before sales gets to them. And everybody, all of their competitors are knocking on the front door in this, like, much less efficient way. Um, and so, that was a case where the product let them do something different on the distribution side mm. that nobody else could do. Like, Square being able to go out for SMBs with a automated underwriting product is a similar example. Um, and so, like, yes, product, like, blew those markets wide open, but it's still not the same as, like, saying you don't have to go build the distribution. Like, right. you still you still need to do the work on, on the growth side.
1: I, I would say... I, 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 we have this uh, YouTube video when I talk about growth in startup school and there's the first couple of slides that they talk about sort of like the evolution of of Facebook and their growth. Uh, I would argue, argue basically that a bad product will not grow, a good product will grow to some sort of like general natural adoption curve. And that curve could be fast in the beginning, but eventually it'll slow down a lot. And the role of the growth team for a good product is to make sure that doesn't slow down, kind of built on top of multiple layers of new... of new channels or, or new onboarding or, or sort of like better conversion. And they roll the growth team which is like identify all those things and all those opportunities and just do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I agree with Dan. Like a, a great product is going to have a, a sense of natural adoption. It's just going to go not to, towards its full potential. So so there's really a lot of things that great product can do. And I use a lot of great products on my, on my phone, my computer. And I know that they're not sort of reaching their potential in terms of adoption because many basic things are not optimized. I'll give you a very concrete example. So at Airbnb, we had this team called Authentication. Mm-hmm. They were working on sign-up and login. <laughs> very basic things. A lot of startup founder thinks that those are just two things to check off the box. I build sign-up and I build login, and then I am done. <laughs> it is actually incredibly um, difficult to make a 100% perfect sign-up and login experience, which meant that team existed for several years, and... Because the people who are signing up and logging into Airbnb had a very clear goal, like booking (laughs) or leaving a review or uh, something along those lines. It was actually very, very valuable. For us to fail on that was complete, like, so, like, that was, like, not acceptable. Yeah. So, we just kept optimizing and optimizing and optimizing. And I'll give you a specific example. In the early days of Airbnb, we used to automatically log you out after, like, I think, two days. um, And we were like, why would we do that? Well, security reasons. That makes sense. So then we would um, run an experiment. We, we set the kind of ex- expiration date of that cookie to seven days and then 30 days and then unlimited. And I think we lifted the, the the that experience, the outcome of that experience, over 1% increase in revenue for the whole company just by extending the session length and making it a little bit easier to, to log in. And the security aspect of that, we actually solved in a different way. We made it kind of like Amazon where if you want to do something sensitive to the site, you'd have to um, go and log in again or authenticate right. so again. So if you were going right? to book, then you have to put in your password. Yeah, but that's just like the amount of code required yeah. <laughs> to make that change was like minutes or hours. Um, but the impact on the company was crazy. Yeah. But I think what that tells the story is that um, there are these things that, that, that really makes it easier for users to kind of like access that really good product. But as a founder, you don't really think about it unless you actually make the spreadsheet, actually know what's happening in the product, and go deep on it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Do, yeah. Do you think Facebook recognized that they weren't hitting their full potential when they started their growth team?
2: It's a good question. Um, I wasn't there, yeah. <laughs> but I think I think probably they did understand that they had this amazing thing, you know that, and you start to realize that if you accelerate growth in very small percentages, you get something really, really good. I actually think like the legacy of that growth team and then like Twitter and LinkedIn and the others that followed is actually maybe problematic when we think about some of the applications of growth later on because they were applied in this case of like extreme product market fit and the things you do in that scenario are slightly different than when you're earlier stage and trying to figure out how how it works. And so, I think like out of that, we got a little bit of this um, kind of growth hacking mentality. Just like throw things at the wall and see what fits and don't think about product market fit because it's assumed that that is solved for, um, which in many businesses it's not. Um, and so, uh, so I think like we have been recovering from that legacy <laughs>
0: in growth for a, for a while, and that just like in a practical terms means like just don't throw gasoline on every fire. Like, what do you mean by that specifically?
2: Yeah, I think it means think about the think about the metrics you're optimizing for, making sure they're long term, making sure they're sustainable. I also think like w- one of the mistakes that companies make a lot is this this idea that speed of testing or velocity of testing is the most important thing um it is important to move fast because it is is quite hard to have good hypotheses about what's going to work. Like I am constantly wrong about trying to predict the results of (laughs) of experiments. Um, And so you do need to just test a lot of things. However, if you just get, if you optimize for speed at all costs, um, you know, you should be instead thinking about things like how do we test really disparate things to make sure that we are really testing at the ends of the the experience to understand, you know, what's going to to drive. So instead of like moving minor things around the conversion flow, test an entirely different flow or a very different experience, um, not only will you learn and more, um, you know, based on kind of where the result nets out, but you actually will get results back faster because sample size is a product of your effect size. <laughs> and so, like, driving a higher effect is more important. Uh, and I think the other thing is if you, like, look at a backlog of, 80 or 100 experiments, often there's only four or six hypotheses underneath that. And you should really be like thinking about which hypotheses you're testing rather than just trying to run through all 80 tests. Mm. Um, And so like in the example of Thumbtack, when we're optimizing conversion, we may think they need more education as they're moving in. We may think there's a trust issue. We may think we actually don't even have the right types of users in the flow overall. There's different sets of experiments. We'll test those things. Do like the one or two right things against each hypothesis validate or invalidate it, and then move on. And so I think like just a more thoughtful,
1: uh, slightly slower, actually, approach can sometimes work really well. I would love to dive into that. So let's talk about A-B testing and experimentation. So this is something that um, I tend—I used to say that, like, if you ask any product manager at Airbnb, what's the most useful tool that that you ever use there? And they would say it's the experiment framework, the ability to run A-B tests and easily measure the impacts of, of new changes. Uh, when you meet with startups, um, how far along are they, in, and sort of like in terms of the ability to run experiments, and what are the type of advice you give them? I'll give you a common question again in the early days: is sort of like, what tools should I use? But I'm not yeah. sure if that really applies at your stage. But I'd love to hear what you hear. what do you think.
2: Yeah, so um, we're typically working with companies that are a little bit later, so kind of Series B and on, often. So they have some of this earlier stage. I think there's like a first order question ahead of experimentation, which is like, is the site instrumented in the right way? Are you updating that instrumentation as you change features? Um, is all of this kind of queryable, SQL, and serviceable to the company? All that stuff has to happen first, I think, um, so that you can like really, you have kind of the integrity of data. Um, but then building a thoughtful framework on top of that, an experiment framework. I think increasingly the the third-party tools to do this, the full stack tools are pretty good, actually. And so even for quite talented teams, the answer is usually not to build it yourself right away. Okay. Um you know, I'd love to hear if you have a rule of thumb on this. I think generally, if you can be comfortable with the fact that a, an entire engineer is going to be maintaining that infrastructure in perpetuity, then then maybe that's okay. If that feels like too much, uh, then you probably should be thinking more about a third party type infrastructure prior to that.
1: Yeah, I um, I, I used to recommend building your own own tool because that's sort of like my my primary experience at Airbnb. I think we started with with an external tool, but then we built our own own thing. Um, and I describe often how incredibly simple the first tool was. It was basically a feature flagging tool <laughs> that would, like, you can show things to some users and should, other things you were not visible to some users. And then you would basically just sort of, like, run that 50-50, the 50 feature flagging tool, and then you run queries on your database. And that's sort of how we got started. Like, the first year or two, I remember all A-B tests was basically an Excel uh, like output with some 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 like calculation on statistical significance. Then, I mean, 2014, 2015, we built this, like, really elaborate tool that would do all things automatically, and it's just, like, magic. But that wasn't how we got started, and we really got started with just this feature flagging tool, and those exist as um, tools that you can use. And um, as long as you, like you said, you can query the data, you would know, sort of, like, feel pretty comfortable about, about sort of, like, how um, a certain new feature would perform. The one thing I would say is the thing you want to decide early on is who sort of, like... What is the the, the the thing that you're controlling the experiment on? And I would recommend that it's going to be user accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, you doing it on visitors or something like that's going to be typically much harder. Um, but even on user accounts, it's like relatively hard to fail. Mm. Even do like the the market level experiments or search experiments, uh, those are difficult. Um, those are like difficult enough that data scientists there would make mistakes early on and kind of have to throw things away. But if you just do a simple user count experiments, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah.
0: How else did you break apart metrics? Like you you have all this tooling, but then how do you start thinking about like, okay, these are the things that matter. These are the things we're
1: going to start tracking. So in the first week of YC, we had the growth bootcamp and the first talk I gave at growth bootcamp is on retention. Um, so I basically walk through the kind of, um, the connection between a product value and retention and how a great product um, often have, is completely reflected in that retention graph. And um, I asked everyone, are you measuring any of these things? That that Basically, what is the metric that measures the product value? Do you measure that over time? And then if you do those things, you kind of have a retention graph. So in many products, B2B and consumer, this applies. And this is something that companies should be doing. Mm-hmm. And you don't need enormous sample size to, to get useful data from that. Um, So that's typically what I start. The second thing is sort of like where's users coming from. Uh, Some basic Google Analytics or basic, just like source tracking is a good place to start. After that, I like to have a survey asking people sort of like how they heard about the product because some things can be hidden in the... source tracking sometimes you have the survey like on checkout or over email or oh uh, at sign up like like okay. like like for example if you come in through google brand or google, like for example if you come in through google yeah you're gonna have to determine is that someone who know about your product before or not knowing about your product before if they know about your product how do they hear about it well that google isn't going to tell you that or the app store isn't going to tell you that you're going to have to find out from the users and it would it's sometimes useful to just break it down a little bit deeper and sort of like how do people hear about the product in the first time is it through friends is it through workplace or whatever that, that, that i think those things are important um, and then after that, it's the end-to-end funnel. Just sort of like, what are the steps from the first time I heard about your product to I get to that product value? Um, there's lots of things you can measure there. Yeah,
2: I think, I think that's a great overview. One, one thing I would add is, is uh, if you are working on retention or trying to optimize retention metric, very often the way to do that is actually quite early in the product experience, the types mm-hmm. of ways that you set a user up for good retention. And it could be the first session, first week with a product. Um, and so the next set of metrics you need after retention is what are the early proxies for retention? Um, so you can experiment on that. And so this is like a slightly harder question that we work with companies on, but I think, you know, there's one level, which is just what are all the things that correlate to retention or satisfaction? Um, and then you've got to go start experimenting to understand causality. Um, but that set of metrics and having really good metrics for what is healthy activation look like? What is, when do we know a user is on the right path? That stuff is a really kind of important add to the model Mm. once you've got the basics built. what was an example of that at Thumbtack? So um, in this case, and in general for marketplaces, you know, the kind of North Star or the top metric is not something like weekly active users because you need something that combines both sides of the marketplace. So in our case, it was transactions or mm-hmm. requests placed. Um, it's probably quite similar for, yeah. for Airbnb. Um, we, you know, the real world product, the thing we were optimizing for is hires happening in the real world. So a, a professional getting hired by a consumer. Um, we didn't actually have full data Transparency into what was happening off the platform And so we had to look for upstream proxies for when that was gonna happen and the main thing was when a consumer got a certain number of Quotes from a pro we had they then believed that we did the job for them. We gave them options They could go choose their higher rate was much higher their their uh, NPS would actually like you could watch it spike at a certain number of quotes and so the metric we were going on was the number of customer requests that had that many quotes. And actually, our liquidity metric in each market, when you looked at General contracts in New York, the way we measured the health of that market was what percentage of consumer requests were getting a sufficient number of quotes. Mm. Uh, and that's what set us up on a kind of a healthy trajectory
1: in that market. Mm. So, I, I want to go back to an uh, early question. We were talking about experimentation a while. One of the experiments, experiences I've had is I've kind of like started talking to later stage companies, maybe Series B, Series C. And I'm like, do you run experiments? And they're like, yes, we do. So how many have you run in the last 12 months? It's like 12. And that that would be on a large engineering team. So I often find that people have the, people understand the idea of an A-B test. They understand that sort of like what it could be used for, but they haven't fully immersed into doing it and they haven't fully kind of got the entire company rallied around it as Mm. a a way to validate um, sort of decisions. I'm curious to see like, what have you seen if, if that was the case, you came into a company and I said, I've ran 12 experiments in the last year, I have 50 engineers. Like, What would you tell me and how to change that?
2: So uh, I think the big thing here is like growth increasingly, I think, is less of a like team or atomic unit. And it's just like the way of running a business, using data and experimenting. And I think that is quite hard to just talk somebody into (laughs) yeah you know it's like a philosophy for how you run a business yeah um and so i think the most successful way to do that is kind of like bottoms up and organically which is why i think you sometimes see these like small swat team like growth teams that start to optimize and get quick wins on one part of the product um and like just showing it through numbers is often the very best way to um to to get to that answer and so like one of my favorite examples here is the team the early team at SurveyMonkey did a great job of this like there's like one page in the product which is the end of the, uh, the flow when you take a survey. You have like millions of people hitting this page that could ultimately some at some point become survey creators as well. Um, and they had done no testing on that page. And so the growth team basically just said, we're just going to make it our job to optimize this specific page and started running tests there. And the results became so evident that the kind of influence of the growth team expanded over time. And so I think this kind of like uh, I, I'm just not sure it's something you can talk somebody into. I think you've yeah, got to like, build it.
1: How do you deal with a founder who's like, well, I built, made a great product. It worked. Now I have lots of users and I raised lots of venture capital. But I'm not running experiments. So, um, like, how, how do you change? Sort of like, I understand you can't talk me into it. But, like, I'm the, interested in the idea of making progress. But I'm not interested in, in having my ego sort of like hurt by having data tell me whether this product is actually better or worse
2: i mean i think yeah it's a great but i think it becomes the the culture around the way that you think about experiments you know i think one of the most powerful things of experimentation is or elements of it is that when it's done you send it out to the whole company and talk about why it won or lost you can even get into a culture of like uh you know like unveiling the results of experiment and having people guess which one kind of went went well or not well and i think um that becomes something that people really like. And it's like you, you realize that it is teaching you a lot about your users and the business that would be hard to get otherwise. And so I think this like building this kind of culture around it is really important.
1: What's in your experience a great way to get ideas for A-B tests to run? So like let's say, okay, I have my A/B, my experiment framework figured out. Like I know I run experiments, now I need lots of ideas and things to test. Yeah. How do you how do you your experience go about that?
2: So so I, ideally they come from everywhere. We actually like basically kind of like open this up pretty pretty broad funnel. So certainly everybody on the growth team, but even others uh, outside of that, we're basically all adding stuff in a brainstorm or Google Doc or whatever it was. You you do have to have somebody synthesizing that that mm-hmm. is not in a crowdsourced <laughs> function. Um but I think like Many of our best ideas came from engineers and other parts of the company yeah. um, who just had some insight into a part of the product or a user experience that that nobody else had. And so I think like basically, you know, broadening the scope and then having uh, some kind of, you know, synthesis. On yeah, and, and, and
1: who decides what to work on first? So say you have 15 ideas of things to fix in the onboarding flow. Who decides what to work on first and what's the good framework in your experience too?
2: Yeah. So I think, um, uh, there's a kind of a central point, which is a product manager think, thinking about that point and an engineering lead thinking about that, that part of the product. Um, I do come back to this like hypothesis driven approach. So like, what do you believe you're testing and what is the best way to test that thing? I think it's a really good way to, to force that, that conversation. Um, I think it's, it's hard. I do think it's hard to be
0: very collaborative at that end stage when you're okay, deciding yeah. what to uh, what to choose.
1: People have different roles, so that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Hmm.
0: So as an employee, so Gustav, you're talking about advising founders of these later stage companies, but Dan, you mentioned these bottom up approaches. What are other good examples of employees at companies being like, "Hey, I want to take a growth driven approach here," and then like getting buy in across the whole company? Like, as we, we mostly talk about advice in the context of founders, but like, let's give some advice for employees who like really want to get a growth program going.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh, I think there are certain classes of things that are easier to get off the ground and test. And so actually one of the reasons that that um, paid marketing is so common early in companies is it's just like very quick, quick to get off the off the ground and you can validate that. And so I think finding those types of things where you can really prove something with a small budget or small team are super important. And, and very often, you know, testing a new channel in that way um, can be a way to, um, uh, to to really prove something. You don't have to go get permission to do that uh, in, in many cases. Um, and so I think there's there's like many examples in the acquisition area of just go going and finding this thing mm. um, that may work. Hmm, cool.
1: I'm curious if you have others. I'm trying to think of good examples here. But I, I would say uh, what you said around publicizing what is the goal and publicizing any effort towards that goal towards the company is a great way to doing it. So I really like when you have a weekly email of all the metrics in your company that goes out to everybody. Now, that will anchor people to say, oh, it's bookings. That's the thing that we're going for, is bookings. Okay, so then the next natural question would be, what are the drivers of bookings? And well, that's your funnel. And then if you are any of those teams that are the driver of the funnel uh, of of, of that metric, bookings, now you need to improve that metric. And if you run an A-B test, you can actually prove that you improve that metric. So what we did at Airbnb was effectively um, we would have a top line metric, which was bookings. And then we would say to a bunch of different teams, growth team, marketplace teams, and others, that you guys are in charge of driving incrementality to that metric. And as an engineer or, or, or anyone on any of these teams, you just come up with the best idea that you can impact um, that bookings metric in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you start running experiments. And they could be like, I really love this idea of allowing everyone to come up with ideas on what to fix. Because um, the more kind of ingrained you are with a certain... Part of the funnel, let's say you are working on sign up, for example. Or let's, say, let's say you're working on even something deeper, referral sign up. So, I, at Airbnb, there would be tens of thousands of people that would sign up from referral link every day. They have high intent to become users and maybe eventually spend that money. But if that sign up flow is not perfect, well, there's a lot of things you can do there. And there's some engineer who knows that flow really well, who's going to know that, well, there's these like five examples of things that are not working. If I fix them, um, then that's the kind of thing you want to share to the company so that people start understanding the incrementality of these small things. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm a general engineer, I would say try to think about orient yourself around what's high intent. This is different for different companies, but in case of Airbnb, um, the early wins are often in the high intent flows. So like where people are actually thinking about booking or actually about to book. So search conversion is an important one. Um, sign up conversion is an important one. Uh, sort of like online marketing traffic was an important one for us versus, for example, homepage is super confusing. And there's many companies that have this experience where like people coming to your homepage um, is a combination of people that really want to do the thing that you offer, people just looking around, people accidentally ended on your page. It's just Mm -hmm. like a random, it's just a hard place to start. Yeah. Versus like if you are optimizing the landing page for for Google conversion, well, that's going to be a lot of people that want to do exactly what you offer. Right.
2: Yeah, it's a great point. You're probably trading off intent and scale because you don't want to go so deep that you're dealing with 2% yeah. of the population, yeah. but too f- high
1: funnel doesn't work. So that, that was the mistake that we made. We actually made the mistake of, of going all focusing on the onboarding for the homepage mm. because they're like, well, that has the biggest scale by a long shot. But it turned out that only like 10% of the people that come to the homepage actually have a booking in mind. Right. And everybody else <laughs> has something else in mind when they come to it there and be homepage for the first time. That's crazy. Um, so, guys, when it comes to advising companies,
0: what are the main differences in growth uh, between a, B&B, a B2B company and a
1: consumer when you're advising them? Um, so, I think consumer has been kind of leading the chart on on um, what to do for for the last, like, 10 years. And I think many of these tactics and strategies are now being adopted by B2B. Um, and I one thing that I... If you see YC companies coming in and doing YC in the early stage program, now the most common advice is sort of like build a framework to figure out how to do more sales faster. And like that's a funnel. And we kind of give them advice or sort of like start in the end and say, if I need to sell 10 to 10 customers every week, uh, work your way backwards from how many people need to pick up the phone or how many people have to show a demo to, how many people do have to email or or some other way reach to get to that demo and just like build a funnel and sort of like start that way. And then n- now you know what sort of like the early days, um, the, the early part of that funnel look like. So there are many of the tactics that are using consumer that are now being applied to B2B, but it came a little bit later. Um, the benefit of B2B is you typically have much higher LTV. So you can spend, you can be a lot more creative on online marketing. Um, you can, you, you often like the, the first question I ask companies is sort of like, can you make a list of all the potential customers in the world? Um, hopefully if that list is sort of like, in the hundreds of thousands or smaller, make that list. Like find a way to make that list and then like take that, those people and put it through all the different Go channels that exist, whether it's online marketing, whether it's sales, automated sales, just like go after that list. If your product is so mainstream that it's in the millions and millions, then you're gonna act like a consumer company. Because you're gonna you're gonna go after the same kind of um, strategies that a consumer company would go after. Um, but but what if you went
0: after a big client in the wrong way? People talk about fundraising in this context. Like, maybe you shouldn't try your pitch on Sequoia the first time, for example, right? So, like, how
1: do you think about that? Um, I, there's a distinct difference to me between um, uh, SMB and enterprise. Um, and they often have very different sort of, like, closing, um, closing kind of uh, cycles, if you, if you, if you mean, mm-hmm. if, you, if you want... Um, like versus uh, as SMB company, often what you do is you have this top of the funnel on, this, on, the, on your sales funnel, and then you have a relatively automated way to sign them up. So that maybe is one video demo, and then you have a customer. Uh, and this is typical for SaaS companies, I think, is that you have some way of scaling up the ability to sign up these customers. In the enterprise world, which I have much less experience, um, the end closing event is going to be through real traditional sales in some way. Um, Now, you can build up the excitement through uh, content marketing that can even be targeted content marketing, um, trying to figure out who's the decision maker and targeting those people. There are lots of things that you can do. Um, In many cases, social proof is a super critical uh, thing here because um, it's relatively easy to understand how companies make decisions about new product. And you kind of have to just like deeply understand that and then mimic your growth strategy towards how that has happened. And... I think in the SaaS SMB kind of group, there's just a lot more distributed, how people make those decisions. Um, and <clears throat> I was one of the first users of Slack inside of Airbnb. I certainly wasn't the buyers of communication software <laughs> Airbnb, But I was, I, I, me and a few other people were like, hey, we should try this new thing. It seems awesome. And yeah. then like a year later, everyone's on Slack. Okay. So that was like, if you're in that category, you can go grow much more bottom up. Versus if you, if you enterprise category, you have to identify that list of those people first and be like, these are the people I'm going after.
0: Right. Yeah. I was just curious about like potentially putting your highest value potential customer in some kind of weird experiment and like churning them out by being I mean, uh, like, oh shit, oops, maybe we shouldn't have changed the color to purple or whatever.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I do think so. One of the things that has, I've learned working with more and more companies is that more types of decisions are Type Two decisions than you think. The type of decision you can actually roll back and get another shot at. Um, it's maybe you know, I, I, we don't work with companies that are dealing with large enterprises; typically, more SMB, and so you maybe have a little bit more leverage there. But even things like uh, pricing, um, uh, features, packaging—those types of things that feel um, very final—you hmm. often get leverage to keep testing. And so, in, in, hmm. in general, I think um, testing some of those things is okay. Particularly Particularly early on, um, while you're while you're finding um, the right the right mix of things, and so I wouldn't worry too much about okay. like burning burning that audience. Um, of course, um, you know the reputation, the community, those types of things is important. Um, but as long as you go into experimentation with good intent and think about uh, the end use, I think you're okay.
1: Okay, I'm curious to dive a bit, a bit into that. Uh, so I, you have a lot of experience with pricing experiments or pricing uh, some some experience. Yeah. So so, so how, in your experience, so like what's the the best advice to a series A funded company or a seed funded company where like, um, I have a price for my product, um, is somehow is correlated to LTV. Um, I want to figure out if that's the right price or not. Like, what would you start?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I think we're like backing up one step and saying, um, are we growing, uh, you know, virally and is basically therefore it's it's all about removing friction mm-hmm. and price is a good way to remove friction or yeah. lowering price. Or are we going to need to fund this through paid marketing and other things, in which case you actually need a significantly higher margin? So like, what's the starting point? Yeah. I think is a really important piece. Um, and then the second one is, price and anything related to monetization is really tough because it's basically a system of incentives and it will change people's behavior mm-hmm. and so you have to observe these things over very long periods of time mm-hmm. um to make sure you're getting the right answer and so i'm like a big fan of running a b test for a sufficient amount of time and then flipping it to you know maybe five percent remaining in in the uh, original test for a very long term to observe that the thing you th- thought happened continues to happen yeah. um and and validating that um but I think if you start from the place of where do we want our, our margins to be and how's that fueling our growth strategy, and then thinking about long-term metrics and how you use pricing to, to influence got that, it. you land so, in so a better so place. So let's say
1: I run a subscription product and you bump the price from $10 to $15. I should hold a whole lot group for a long period of time on the $10, the $10 bucket. I think often that gives you a much richer kind of insight into, into how it changed people's behavior. Got it, got it. I see.
0: Hmm, cool. So um, when it comes to paid... How do you guys feel about paid marketing, especially in the context of like the dynamic shifting over the past five years, say? What do you think about paid marketing?
1: I would say that the big untold story of growth is that we've shifted from um, from free channels to paid channels. Uh, and paid channels are paid marketing, um, referrals to some extent, but but paid marketing is, is the one that is the most obvious one. Um, I think the reason that happened is because the platform shifted from offering free traffic to offering paid traffic and there is benefits with paid traffic because it's highly targeted like much easier to target the campaigns you're running towards specific users versus in the free channels targeting is not that easy so i think that's really the general trend um which means to me that um uh it's not easier um it's more because it's equally competitive if you are um, a subscription service or an e-commerce service that acquiring um, people through paid—that's very competitive because there's lots of other companies doing the same thing, going after the same customers. So you have to learn how to be data-driven, um, creative, uh, and just really treating online marketing as as something that you constantly have to innovate on, versus something that is just sort of like set and forget. Here's here's my my online marketing team, and then they just try to hit their targets. It's something you constantly invest in, and if you I'm not sure if this is good advice for seed funded companies, but if you look at the evolution of the online marketing team at Airbnb, it went from like one or two engineers to when I left, I think we were 15 or 20 engineers on online marketing. And they were building everything from attribution system to automated bidding to all these different things. And I think the general trend for online marketing is, is going towards more, more data-driven, more automation, and just less, you elevating the, the, the humans to sort of like making more high-level decisions.
2: Absolutely. Uh, totally agree. I mean, j- just to add on this, I think it's, it's becoming more common, and it's there's an important place for paid marketing. It's fast to get off the ground. It's relatively easy to test. Um, If it becomes your primary channel, it's a very hard thing to sustain because it's expensive, uh, but also because it degrades pretty quickly, actually. So like, you know, if you look at the D2C companies or Blue Apron, I think, you know, they grew really quickly on the back of paid marketing and then they realized later cohorts got more expensive. They retained less well. And so this kind of like has this compounding negative effect. Um, and it can be a scary place to be. And so I think if you're thinking about paid marketing more as an accelerant, Uh, rather than the growth strategy, it's Mm -hmm. a much healthier place to be. And so, like you know, a couple examples of a place I think it's used very effectively is to seed a new market you might be launching, for example. Um, or at Thumbtack or other marketplaces, very often used to help balance the marketplace because it can be much more surgical than you know organic or or uh, SEO or something like that. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we knew maybe we needed uh more general contractors in New York, but not you know plumbers in Phoenix. And so we were willing to pay a lot for one area, not the other, and it was helping play this function. But the core of the growth was still organic and SEO, mm-hmm. um, which is more sustainable over time.
1: What do I do if I have that? So let's say I have seventy percent of my yeah, use acquisition coming from Instagram ads. Yeah, like is that a prop? Is that a problem for the growth team or the online marketing team? Is that a product problem? Like, like where should I start if I have that situation?
2: Um, so uh, I think it is is primarily a product problem. If you haven't, uh, if you have tried other things that they haven't worked, you, you obviously need you. you um, typically need to do core product work to enable your, yourself to go into these other, other types of channels. Um, I think the other thing is, is these are all like we were talking earlier, business model competitions where like the best companies at monetizing are going to win in paid marketing. And so if your product is better at monetizing, it allows you to then go do, do more of that. And so I think it's like, it's very hard to get in this place where you were just spending more and more into some of these core channels and watching that degrade. Got it. And so thinking about, yeah, what are the enablers
0: of that? Hmm. So how do you think about that when you don't necessarily have all the data? So you're talking about like, say you're entering New York city, right? And you're like, all right, we're going to do a lot of paid to enter New York city, but you don't necessarily know how long you can maintain that. And at what rate the ratio will shift and you start getting organic growth. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So how do you even think about that in the early days of a new market?
2: Um, I think it's really hard. I mean, you certainly will be spending into negative ROI to start in mm-hmm. any of these cases. Um, uh, You hopefully have built a model over time as you launch markets where you can understand what that curve looks like and and figure out where you are on that maturation curve. Um, But I think uh, understanding uh, the shape of that curve is the most important thing. And you just have to test your way into it for the first few.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, Dan, uh, one of the kind of experiences that I've seen now becoming a pattern is uh, I worked with this YC company. They get funded. They get CRSA funding. And then maybe even B funding. And then somewhere in that line, they get a board member. And that board member said, oh, you need a VP of marketing. And you need a head of product marketing. And, and you already have maybe a growth person or, or a marketing person. Uh, and now you have these like, multiple roles sort of like going after the same thing. And that can create friction. So experience I'm curious to learn what you, you have experienced here. And so sort of like what kind of advice do you give founders?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I think, so first of all, I think most companies can go longer without a VP of marketing than they think they can (laughs) as as a general rule of thumb. Um, I think, you know, one of the problems we have in the market is, uh, how many really good, experienced team builders who also know growth marketing and fit this VP marketing profile are there? There's like, there's not that many of them. And Mm -hmm. so like hiring the perfect person for that is very tough. Um, but if you kind of like disaggregate, the things that that person can be asked to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know growth marketing, which which often should be closer to product actually, or more like a uh, a real growth effort.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, messaging uh, or like product marketing that those kinds of things that can often be product marketing, and it may live in product or design or something like that. Um, and then sometimes PR is also put into this, which can also be a distinct thing. And so I think like, are you just solving? do you want all these things and you're just like trying to find the person can do all those or is there a way to solve your individual challenges with with individual people that may be part of existing teams? Mm -hmm. I think one of the symptoms of Bad organizational friction is when you have multiple teams working on the same metric without joint accountability. It's mm-hmm. so like very classically a retention metric will get split between in product growth stuff and a marketing team owning email and push notifications. And it's really hard if a, you, you, you get a disjointed consumer experience because two teams are thinking about the same problem. And it's much better if you can combine that into one and adding somebody like a VP marketing in the
1: mix can make that uh, an even harder problem because both these leaders think that they own that. So that if you problem. make all these decisions, like how, how would you organize that? You have. Email push notification, like the classical sort of CRM marketing stuff that often comes out in a box from some other company. Yeah. And then you have the retention product team. Like, if you sort of like make these decisions, like, what would you decide?
2: Um, So I think it depends a little bit on uh, the company's DNA. So if they are at a place where they really understand um, analytical experimentation based approaches, Mm -hmm. then maybe it's easier to just build it as part of the product team. Mm -hmm. Um, if you need to like prove that this works and evangelize it, you might want a standalone team where you go get a growth person. Um, so I think that's probably like the right starting point. I also think different areas of the funnel lend themselves to different type of approaches. So acquisition is a little bit easier to aggregate, disaggregate because they're unique channels where you know some are more marketing heavy like paid acquisition which becomes very engineering heavy over time Um, some start very engineering and product heavy from the start conversion and retention those types of things and so i think like thinking about the type of problem you're trying to solve um, but specifically for this retention
1: question i think it is typically healthier for that all to be within product pretty early on do you think that every single person that you mentioned now should have a way to measure their ability to sort of drive incremental growth for the company like whether you're in brand marketing or PR yeah. or um, online marketing or product, should all of them sort of share this incrementality metric or are they kind of going after slightly different things?
2: Uh, slightly different things. So, so I think um, uh, the the growth stuff, the, the growth marketing stuff, certainly should be all kind of contributing to this North Star metric mm-hmm. in a very clean kind of tree. I think where you have a challenge when you have these like, Uh, very hard to measure outside inputs like PR and brand and those types of things. Um, I think, you know, brand is this like topic that we get all spun up on, but really like the output of brand, like trust and reputation and things you care about, that is obviously very important. But what you can do with brand marketing is like actually a small piece of that. It's like the awareness piece, it's... um, it's like maybe make wrapping in, in like a, a hook that people can remember it by that's not brand. That's, that's a way to accentuate brand. And so actually like if you have a great product that people love brand is just accumulated customer goodwill. So maybe actually the best way to grow your brand is just to get more people to your product. And that's a growth team, yep. you know? Yep. And, and so like, I think, um, very often, we'll talk to a team that they have like you know their kind of paid marketing stuff going over here that's very performance focused, and they for just some reason have this like other budget over here that doesn't have any metrics tied to it, and they're willing to just spend on "quote unquote" brand. And very often that budget is wasted. And so I'm much more kind of amenable to as much as much about um, kind of measurable core growth activities that ladder
1: up to a, a metric. Is it important for a startup, like even in, in the later stages, to measure brand awareness and brand consideration, like the traditional brand? brand marketing metrics like is that useful um, the the sentiment is very important how yeah. many people what
2: your MPS is um, how many people would be disappointed if you went away those mm-hmm. kinds of things are really good signal on, around fit mm-hmm. but raw awareness and benchmarking against competitors and those types of things I have rarely seen that become actionable
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, in a in a uh, product uh, maybe with the exception of knowing when you've kind of tapped out a, a core market but that's a late late stage uh, problem
0: Hmm. so related to this uh tony asks about airbnb so you could talk about airbnb in the context of wow they have such a great brand um but on the other hand they have a great product Mm -hmm. so tony asks how can airbnb a startup like airbnb grow so quickly was the need was the need of the customers was it marketing strategies was it the idea of, of
1: just travel in general and the dream of vacations like what do you think I think that what made Airbnb unique on the guest side, so Airbnb, there's, there's two products, the host product and the guest product. On the guest side, uh, it, it was the viral nature of this unique experience. So if you go to New York and you stayed in an apartment that was in a local neighborhood and you just had a very unique experience that you never had before, it is fundamentally something that you talk about when you come home. And we kind of studied this. We studied when do people talk about travel. Well, before you go about to go to travel, you ask your friends where, where to go. Um, when you're traveling, you post lots of photos and stuff online. It's actually the, one of the prime things we do when we travel is to share information to our friends about it. And then when you come back and you tell all your friends how great it was. So this is natural things that people talk about. Um, and similarly to how Uber and Lyft is sort of viral in their nature because it's a new experience and it's something that we often do together with friends. So I think that was the primary driver of this new, really great product, um, in terms of tactically what we did, like I've seen graphs on the incrementality on online marketing in the early days of Airbnb, and it was very important. Like had we not done online marketing early on, uh, we were certainly not been as big as we are today. So that was critical. That was sort of pretty proven stuff. It was Google, people Googling for things that relate to Airbnb, or that relate to staying in homes or, or apartments, and we just bought those keywords, um, and um, that helped us drive growth. And like Dan said, that was a very good way to be strategic about where we wanted to grow. So, like, maybe it wasn't super useful to buy these keywords in San Francisco, but if you're in Europe or in Asia or in or in Russia or somewhere, it certainly was very important to kickstart those markets. Mm. And then after that, it was the word of mouth that also, like, drove most of it. But if you look at the composition of, of growth of Airbnb, uh, word of mouth is by far the biggest driver. So, I think it was like way over 50% on the guest side and way over, like, 70% on the host side of people that heard about Airbnb for the first time through a friend. After that, it was online marketing, um, referrals, and SEO. Those are the three sort of like teams and channels that we had, um, and remains very important all those three three channels. Hmm. Um, and um, at the scale, it got to the point where like yeah, every single small uh, tenth of a percent improvement matters a lot. So, so so that's sort of like when you get to that scale, it's not like you just spin up a new channel and now you have lots of new growth in that channel. It's not really worked that way. There's these like pretty expected ways that people will discover a product like Airbnb. And we just made sure we optimized them like crazy.
0: Yeah. Well, are there any examples of an already big company doing something and it's like a step function improvement in retention or conversion?
1: Yeah. And I, I, that's actually the, the, the example that I give on the Facebook graph on my, on my um, YouTube video uh, from start, Startup School. Um, there were more product changes than there were anything else. But when Facebook figured out to translate and nationalize the site, it was very important for the growth um obviously when they grew out of made it available out of outside of just a new university is a really big one but then mobile was a huge one so i don't know if we've seen a platform shift like that in the last five or seven years but when we saw mobile happening um if you were a desktop app then you were only speaking to a very small audience compared to what was going to happen so rearranging facebook for mobile if you look at both instagram and whatsapp are mobile products so so that was a really big step function for them Uh, and the last thing um was making Facebook available in um, um, sort of, like, very data-constrained and and hardware-constrained markets. So making, like, Messenger Lite and sort of, like, even acquiring WhatsApp and making Facebook available in places where, like, um, the native Facebook app that we used to here wasn't actually um, a great user experience. Yeah, Uh, it was too heavy. Yeah, and I think those are all product changes, but they are step functions for a company like that.
0: Hmm. So another international question. Michael Savage asks, it would be great to discuss growth into new regions, for example, Africa and UAE. What would their approach be? How does it differ from region to region, culture to culture?
1: We, um, When we grew Airbnb, we actually divided international growth into two different buckets. Um, one, what we call sort of like um, pr- product limitations, and one that we call sort of like cultural impacts. I don't know, those are not the right words, but effectively trying to say, um, everyone said, oh, people in Germany are so different. People in France are so different. People in <laughs> Japan are so different. And that is the hypothesis often coming from people who live in those countries, saying that we are different, so therefore we need a different experience. Um, and it's a very common thing that's hard to prove, which is why everyone, a lot of people share that opinion. Um, now, we needed to prove those things to be able to actually build a team around, making the product different by cultures. Uh, in my experience, we we basically started that process by asking around and we didn't find a lot of a lot of massive cultural differences. Like the stack was basically mobile phones, iOS and Android, desktop, Chrome, um, Facebook, um, Google. This is true for most markets in most countries. Like the exceptions are China, South Korea, Russia, maybe a handful of other countries. Those are the exceptions, but everyone else, kind of like the stack that I described, is sort of how people use your product. So within that, it was very hard for us to prove material changes and how people culturally use products. the other thing that on the product side, when, you, for example, if you don't have the stack, then that's a difference for sure. If you have slow internet or slow phones um, or any of those examples or like that will materially impact sort of like how you use your product. Um, but the thing about the top of the funnel in some of these countries is, um, for example, Google is not available um, in, in, in the sense that like it's not a search engine in, in Russia or in Korea so or in China. So you have to do something else there. Uh, in the Middle East, uh, and many of the more emerging markets, the ads are actually quite quite a good arbitrage for some of these countries uh, companies because um, there are not a lot of premium services to charge for things. And, and a lot of the uh, the brands have actually not gone onto these platforms yet, which means there's a good arbitrage moment for startups. Ads anywhere? Ads on? Ads on Facebook or ads, ads on Instagram or ads, ads on Google. Okay. Um, um, because the prices are so low and there aren't like a lot of well-developed companies that are actually um sort of like able to take advantage of it. Um and there's just as much usage on these platforms in these countries as there here if not more. Next question.
0: Justin Larosa asks what are some of the most common drivers of
1: viral growth? Um so I would say my early part of my experience uh, my on uh, my uh career was all of working on on messaging and, and growing services like Voxer um through viral growth. Um it changed a lot. So um the viral growth depended on certain platforms. Um, typically, platforms that have some sort of, like, list of contacts and a list of, of friends that you grew, grew through. Um, obviously, Facebook is a different example of that. Um, all of these platforms have changed in different ways, and we're less susceptible to that today. Um, there are pockets of interest, I think. There's, like, the viral growth inside corporations. Like, that is a really interesting one, and I see a lot of companies sort of utilize in that in a different way, whether that is through your... Um, um, let's say there's a white company growing through teachers. I've nailed this really well. There's um, another one who's growing through sort of like the um, Google Apps and, and sort of like using the social proof of your coworkers using products. That's a really strong one. And I think you see this more new niche variations of viral growth than you see the general sort of like in viral growth. It's just much more difficult these days to do it. And the channels aren't generally available in the same way. Um, so... The thing to see still seems to be working pretty well is referrals, um, um, like incentivized um, viral growth. Uh, you just have to make sure you can measure the incrementality of that because you are giving away money for, mm-hmm. new, for new users. But but um, I, I, I often see YC companies sort of like, taking some of their referrals advice from Airbnb and then coming back and say, actually, that was really meaningful for us and we're and hmm. we growing faster. So, so I, I have seen that continue to work versus the general viral channels have been, in many cases, saturated and not not a good way for startups to grow anymore.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah, viral, viral is much harder. I totally agree. It's like in much more kind of like closed networks rather than open networks. The other thing is, is um, referrals are potentially more like paid marketing than they are like virality yeah. in some ways. Yeah. Um, and so thinking about the, it in that way and payback and these other things is is really important. And so when we talk about the growth of referrals, we're talking about another form of growth of paid marketing. It's yeah. just a, a different, you know, end, uh, end person who's getting paid. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think that that it's until we see a big platform shift, reality is, is harder and harder.
0: What do you think about that in the context of a bootstrap company? How should they think about growth in that way? Um, well, well, one advantage of uh, referrals is you uh, you have control over the uh,
2: the levers such that you can make it uh, ROI positive or right. you can you can make it uh, work for you. So I think where companies get over their skis is when they're not thoughtful about payback on these uh, these things. Um, I just think thinking about it as, as free growth is, is not kind of the right, <laughs> the, right um, the right way to approach it. okay
1: yeah aws is so cheap whatever just <laughs> <give it away. laughs> cool so after you left thumbtack you now started your own growth agency basis one um sort of like what is the if i'm a series b founder out there um looking to get help with these things sort of like um should i go in and hire a growth agency so sort of like why should i do that versus build my own own team just tell yeah. me a little, bit, a little bit about that uh, so so the first answer is
2: is um you should not hire consultants in many cases <laughs> <laughs> um i I think um you know, for, for almost all things related to growth, paid marketing, uh, not only do you want to build that muscle yourself, but it's like the front line. You're dealing with your customers and the feedback is so rich that if that person is not sitting next to somebody else on your team, you're missing all of that learning. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, maybe an agency or a uh, consultant can help you get off the ground, give you best practices. It's particularly true if you're in like a well-known space like e-commerce where there are frameworks you can apply Um but uh, typically, your aspiration should be to have a smart in-house team as quickly as possible. Um, you know, the way that we work with companies is somewhat tangential to this, which is focusing on really acute, high leverage problems that we can we have leverage on uh, because we've seen them before. So why are customers churning? How do we use monetization to drive growth? And we're not trying to replace the team, but rather unblock them such that they can execute really quickly and deliver them some insights that would take longer to get otherwise. Um, but in most cases, particularly when it's more operational, I would Say build it yourself.
1: When are you done? Like 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 sort of like if you work for the company, and you're like, <laughs> I'm yeah. working down here. Like like how do you know when you're like okay, I, I've completed my mission here? I think it's it's
2: when the mental model is internalized, right? When they're when the okay. like the the conversation. Uh, becomes really seamless like that's that's the right place where they're clearly off off and running with it yeah um, and there's some insight about how the product grows who the customer is what they need that is being internalized and acted acted upon um, that we feel really good that they're gonna they take it from there and how long is typical an engagement for you guys uh, we, we typically start around three months. Sometimes mm-hmm. they go longer than that, but mm-hmm. sometimes that's all you need to actually get up the curve and understand some of these things. And like, this is a never ending problem. Yeah. Things like monetization growth, you will always be optimizing, but at least for that kickstart or what are the spark or where are the areas to start, kind of what are the deep wells to start mining? Mm-hmm. Uh, that
1: piece can be relatively quick. Uh, and why did you start a consultancy versus just sort of like joining another company and working growth with another company? I, I tried to join another company actually. <laughs> I was, yeah. I, well, and I was working with
2: founders and CEOs and, and like the journey at Thumbtack from like, 30 to 500 was so fun. And I was going to go do that yeah. again. Um, but I just started to see a consistency of the type of questions I was getting. Mm-hmm. And there there weren't really people on the other side that were able to effectively answer them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, as an independent advisor, it was kind of hard to provide the help that they needed. But when we started pairing it to analytics and user research and the ability to like really wrestle a problem to the ground, mm-hmm. that's when it became really powerful. Um, so, I mean, the short answer is we kind of like, grew into it organically um and it's just really fun to get to work with a lot of these founders so we've stuck with it
0: cool so last question which was actually submitted by gustav Um, (laughs) as two people who both advise and work in growth how do you think about growth in the context of improving humanity given that a lot of these products have filter bubbles like can create addictive uh, responses. Um, and on the other hand, like you're trying to make the world a better place. So how do you balance that? Yeah, so so I'm optimistic here. I think um,
2: there are maybe two reasons for that, one of which I think is more valid. But I think one, one is companies like Facebook and and others maybe got some flack because they were optimizing for these short-term metrics like click-through rate and time on uh, site and those types of things that over time has become more sophisticated and measure longer term metrics, you can optimize uh, uh, more, you know, in keeping with both the interests of the company and the consumer. And so that's that's one angle of it. I think like the the one that I, I, I give more credence to is that like this stuff, this cat's out of the bag, right? We're like, we're not going back <laughs> um, to a world where we don't have these addictive products competing for our attention, but we can weaponize these same tools we have learned for good things. And so like other products are going to come in, you know, you see this happening with meditation apps and exercise apps and and healthy eating apps. They're using all the same growth tactics to turn you into a better person. Um, And I'd like to see more and more of that. Um, And so I think like the way is not to try to like put the cat back in the bag, but just to fight back with the the channels, you know, the tactics we've already built.
1: Yeah. I asked this question I I thought about a lot in the last year. I I think as, as a growth team, you should have principles. You should be like, try to figure out these are the principles that I want to follow. Um, some of them means we're not going to have any dark patterns in our app. Um, and then the most important thing is to ask the question, why? Like, if something is really working, why is it working? <laughs> like, w- w- why is it that this is now sort of like changing the behavior of my users? And and the more you understand that, I think the safer sort of like, uh, the more safer place you are in terms of sort of like making a good decision for the, for, for the company. Um, and then I would say much of this uh, that we're talking about is actually tied to engagement driven products so product like you mentioned that fighting for attention that's sort of like where much of this have happened and i think there is a fundamental problem sort of like with with the uh driving the attention and then sort of like having advertising as a monetization engine if you change that and you say actually i'm the i'm the customer i'm paying for the product then you get different outputs because now you're optimizing for me as a customer uh you're not optimizing for someone else i think there's like there are nuances here and i think these are probably the most challenging questions to answer for companies fighting for attention especially if you're free product fighting for attention versus for many other products like i think it's actually massively beneficial to them to do a lot more of this Mm. that's great all right thanks for coming in thank Thank you so much thanks sam thank you all
0: right thanks for listening so as always you can find the transcript and the video at blog.ycombinator.com and if you have a second it would be awesome to give us a rating and review wherever you find your podcast See you next time.